All right, perfect. Okay, go ahead and grab a comfy spot. We're going to get started here. Okay, while we're waiting, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You have to bear with me tonight, guys. I'm fighting a bit of the cold that seems to, everybody seems to have gotten as well. Uh, <clears throat> so my voice is kind of soft and kind of like my throat's just kind of sore. But I, uh, I was with the, the church in Uptown San Diego this morning preaching there. And uh, it was really cool to be with everybody, man. I had this, uh, this kind of moment where I feel like God was kind of just encouraging me personally. Uh, my background in ministry is in worship leading. So I've, I did that for like, 10 years, and I still love to do it. It's one of my favorite things, but one of my favorite things to do, or my favorite things to experience while leading worship, is there are moments when, as a worship leader, you're, you're leading the song, right? And people are responding to the love of God, singing his praises, and then there's times when, you know, I'll finish a song, but the people aren't done singing, and they just keep going. And those moments are so just special as a worship leader. They don't happen all the time, but when they do, it's kind of like, oh man, these people aren't done yet and they're still going. And being with the church that we helped start, I don't know, five or six years ago and seeing them, I, I didn't know half the room. It was incredible. It was all these new people. The church is thriving. It was so encouraging. And, it, and I felt like God just kind of encouraged me with this reality of like in the same way when I was leading worship and people kept singing at times, I felt like that church, um, with the life of that church, it's, it's, it's kept singing, if you will. It's been like, it was just a really cool, encouraging moment for me that like God's faithful, man, and he like carries out his purposes. And um, yeah, so it was really good. But I still have to say, uh, bear with my voice tonight. I'm gonna, I'm gonna press through this, but I should be able to get through it okay. So if you're new with us, we've been uh, going through a series we call What is the Church? Um, and it's the purpose of this series is to define what the church is. This is a church plant. It's brand new. It's still forming. We don't even really know who we are apart from a handful of people. Okay, so if you're new, this is a perfect time to be new because everyone's new. But this series, the purpose of this series is we all have to get on the same page. Okay, if we're gonna actually plant a church, if, if God really is birthing something here called the church, what does that even mean? I think there's tons of, uh, there's tons of ways that the church gets defined in secular culture, even in church culture, and we said we don't want to like, all those things are great, but we wanna look and see what does the scripture tell us the church is? Because if we're gonna be obedient to the call and the assignment that God's given us as a team to see this church planted, we need to know what we're planting, right? Does it make sense? We wanna define the church. So the first week we talked about the church as the family of God. We relate to him as God. He's our father. That means we're brothers and sisters. Um, the second week we talked about how the church is the body of Christ. Um, and then the third week we talked about that the church is the bride of Christ, and if you were with us last week, Andy, the, the guy who leads the church I was at this morning, um, he came and preached us about leadership in the church, like the role of the pastor, the role of the elder. Um, if you've missed any of these things, you can always check them. Any of the messages, they're always on like the, the podcast on iTunes. They're on the website. You can check those out if you'd like and get caught up. But this, this evening, what I want to talk about is this idea biblically that the church is the temple of God, Okay. Now, you have stories all from the beginning uh, of the Bible where you had God's people and they are drifting through the wilderness. God's leading them to the promised land and they built what was called the tabernacle. And then when they kind of settled down a bit, they built the temple, okay? 
<clears throat> and today we're gonna talk about how the church is the temple of God, okay? So before we jump into the scriptures, you have your finger hopefully in 1 Corinthians chapter three by now. Let me pray for us before we jump into the word, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you um, for your grace and your love and your mercy, your unending care. It's just, it blows my mind um, that you that you use your authority in such a way to like love your enemies, people who reject you and rebel against you, myself included. Um, you're so different than me. And I just acknowledge that in this moment, but you love me and it's crazy. So thank you for the love that you have for us, the care that you have for us. I pray, Spirit, that you would, um, you would encourage us this evening, convict us where we need to feel convicted, um, for, like help us experience your forgiveness tonight in areas where we need to experience your forgiveness and your grace and really enjoy your love. That's our desire. We want to enjoy you tonight. And we want to learn more about what it is that you're cultivating in this church plant. So we love you, God. Um, please be with us. Fill me with your spirit, with your power. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 16. I'm just going to read two verses, okay? <clears throat> this is Paul, the apostle. He's writing to the church at Corinth. It's a real city. Okay, real people following Jesus 2,000 years ago. So he writes this to the church at Corinth. He says, do you not know that you, and that word you is plural, so it's basically y'all, okay, you all. <clears throat> do you not know that you, you all, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, plural. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you all are that temple. Okay, so Paul is writing to a people who would have been very, very, very familiar with the original temple. Okay, I referenced that a little bit earlier. Okay, the actual building. They would have known exactly what that was. So these words would have been a little, a little interesting, okay? Paul references that temple, but he references, he references how do I explain this? He references the temple, but not the old temple they were used to, okay? He references this like idea of a new temple. So not the one that they had their minds kind of wrapped around. He says that collectively, the people, the church, that they're a new temple. <clears throat> to understand this idea of a new temple, we have to understand what that old one was that I referenced earlier, okay? So we're gonna do a little background here. I'm gonna focus on three things. This is what we're going through tonight. The first is this. We gotta talk about the old temple, we're gonna talk about the new temple and we're gonna talk about what, what it actually means for us. So the old temple, the new temple, and what it means for us. Okay, first thing, the old tem temple. So here's what you need to know. Uh, you have Genesis one and two, right? The first two chapters of the Bible, you have sinless creation. So everything's the way it's supposed to be. People relate to each other, it's really just Adam and Eve, they relate to each other perfectly. There's no division, there's no sin, there's no brokenness, there's no disease. They're totally, uh, they're totally in relationship with God in a beautiful way, an unbroken relationship. They're, to they're completely in God's presence, unhindered. And then Genesis 3, sin enters the world. It fractures that relationship, not just between Adam and Eve, but between Adam and Eve and God. And they get cast out of the garden. They can't be in God's presence anymore because God's holy. And if they're in his presence, it's dangerous for them, not because God's bad, but because they are and it would hurt them. <clears throat> so they get cast out of the garden, out of God's presence. But here's the cool thing. Even from the beginning, God's desire is to be with his people because he loves them. So Adam and Eve sin against God, they disobey him, and as he's casting them out of the garden, out of his presence, 
because he doesn't want them to be destroyed in his presence. He even like clothes them. Because remember, they were naked and now they started feeling shame because sin enters the world. So he clothes them and he cares for them. It's a beautiful thing because he loves them. He, He wants to be with them. So what he does is he gives them instructions on how they can be in his holy presence without being destroyed. Okay? He, he, he helps them be able to, he gives them instructions on how they can kind of, to a certain degree, recapture what they had originally in the garden. That idea of an unseparated relationship with God. Are you tracking with me? Okay. He doesn't want them to be destroyed in his presence. So here's what I want to do. Um, there's a video that I want to show you. It's maybe five minutes long. It's really, really helpful. It's by this nonprofit organization called the Bible Project. Some of you guys may have heard from them. They're this, um, <clears throat> this organization in Portland, and, uh, and they make these really, really helpful animated videos that are honestly, they do a stellar job of communicating big theological ideas in a way that's really, really helpful. Okay, so I want you to watch this video. It's about five minutes, like I said, and I want you to pay close attention to three things, and we're gonna chat some more, okay? The three things are this. I want you to pay attention to God's holiness in the video. I want you to pay attention to the temple, and I want you to pay attention to how Jesus affects things, okay? Okay, let's go ahead and roll it. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, This idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. 
And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. So, <clears throat> the old temple, okay? The old temple is where God's holy presence was. It's where it dwelt, okay? In the video, it touches on this idea we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about how the people of God, the church, is the new temple of God, okay? Instead of God's presence being in this old building, this old temple, now God's presence is actually inside of his people, okay? Collectively, the church is the new temple, okay? Let's talk, about, let's talk about the new temple. 
Peter writes about, writes about this, the Apostle Peter. He's, he's spent time with Jesus. He got three years with Jesus. He was one of the first uh, leaders in the church. He writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, talking about this idea that the church is the new temple of God. He says this in verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse six, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay, so in verse five, <clears throat> what Peter says is he says that Christians are living stones in God's new temple. Okay, are you getting this picture? I know I'm hitting this kind of repetitively, but there's stones in the wall here, there's bricks in the wall here. <clears throat> Peter's saying that Christians are like stones that are alive that make up God's new temple. He's saying that the church, the people, they're the bricks that make up this new temple. And he also says that God's presence inhabits it collectively. So as the church comes together, each, each stone forming where God's dwelling. Are you getting this picture? Okay. <clears throat> he says, you are being built up you are being built up. And then notice in verse four, it says, as you come to him. Okay, so this indicates like an ongoing, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, personal relationship with Jesus. That's what he's talking about. So, so as you come to Jesus, as you relate to Jesus, you're being built up into this new temple. Okay, do you know what this means? Have you ever played the game Jenga? Yeah, it's that crazy game where if you take the wrong brick, the whole thing falls. The thing with Jenga is that every single one of those bricks when you build the tower is they're interdependent on the other ones. We talked about this idea of interdependence when we talked about the church as the body, right? So independence is I don't need you, I'm good on my own. <clears throat> Not that I don't like you, but I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine just by myself, solo. Okay, codependence is I need you. Like, I'm addicted to you, I have to have you. Super unhealthy, okay? Interdependence is we need each other. It's a beautiful thing. He's hitting this idea, Peter, he's describing the church as an interdependent people, okay? And he talks about um, how, how, like, think about like with Jenga, like each block in the Jenga tower, it affects the strength of the entire tower. So it's almost like you're only, only as strong as your weakest link type of thing, okay? That's what Peter, that's the picture that he's drawing for us. So here's what that means. That means that as God is forming this church plant, that means that what you and I do, what you and I don't do at the same time, that affects things, that directly affects the health of this church plant because God's church is an interdependent people. Are you following me? <clears throat> So as you relate to Jesus, here's the kicker. As you relate to him, this is Peter's point, as you engage with him, as you relate to him, you will live an interdependent life. 
So that can be actually a gauge. It can be like a thermometer for your spiritual life is to the degree that you are relating to Jesus, engaging with Jesus, is to the degree that you will live an interdependent life. It's not like a, a maybe thing. It, it really is. It can be helpful, okay? <clears throat> so I, I, I do have to ask a question. Like, if you follow Jesus, just to the Christians in the room, okay? <clears throat> How built into the lives of other Christians are you? Like, is there a desire for that? Or is maybe there's fear. Like, maybe there's things. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. Maybe somebody has betrayed your trust, Maybe there's a plethora of reasons why you can, you can say straight up, hey, like, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to live an interdependent life because I don't want to get hurt. I just want to tell you that's a really, that's a very real thing. And like, I'm sorry, I have, there's, there's a handful of relationships in my life where I've experienced that. So I want you to know like I identify with you in that. But I also want to tell you that God has more for you. Like he desires to heal that part of your heart. He desires for you to live an inter interdependent life because that's how he created you because you're gonna experience more joy and his presence as you do so. You following me? Okay. <clears throat> so Peter says that that's what the church is. The church is people who live interdependently. Like that's what we're planting. We're not planting a gathering. We're not starting an event. We're not trying to like have this thing blow up into something. No, we're, we're, we're literally just trying to establish an interdependent people who rely on each other, who look to each other. You follow me? Okay. <clears throat> so Peter says that, that, that the church is living stones being built together as God's new temple, God's new dwelling place, okay? And then he mentions something really important in verses six and seven here. He says that Jesus is the cornerstone, <clears throat> Okay, are you familiar with what a cornerstone is like in a structure? What it is is, we have some engineers in the room that do. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, so the cornerstone, uh, it's the stone that all the other stones align with, okay? So if the cornerstone's strong, all the rest of the other stone, stones are gonna be great, okay? If the cornerstone's off just a little bit, that building is screwed, okay? <clears throat> the cornerstone's really important. If it's off, the rest of the stones are gonna be off. Check out verse seven again. He says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, okay? Peter intentionally uses the word builders here because everybody builds their life on a cornerstone. Everybody, everybody you've ever met, atheist, agnostic, Christian, Buddhist, like Muslim, it doesn't matter. Age doesn't matter, gender doesn't matter, background doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Everybody builds their life on a cornerstone. The question is, what's yours? Like what is your cornerstone? If it's not Jesus, Peter tells us that it's a stone of stumbling. Have you ever seen anybody trip and fall? Like in real life, like watch them trip and fall? So I have scars on my knuckles right here. <clears throat> and uh, these scars exist. Uh, when I was in high school, we, we, we kind of organized this massive like water balloon fight. Uh, it was hoses and water balloons. And it was, in a, it was in a neighborhood. It was totally like good, clean fun. It, was, it, was, well, it started that way. <laughs> and uh, so I remember there was these kids that were, they borrowed their mom's minivan 
and they would drive down the street and just like kind of try to do like a drive-by bombing of, of water balloons. And they did it a couple times. And then the crew that was just down the way from us, I was watching them and they caught wind to that they were gonna come back, open the door and then bomb, you know, whatever. So they waited with buckets and they doused this mom's like minivan inside with, it was crazy. So, and they would just put hoses and stuff in there. It was gnarly. So it was, it was, it was fun, but it was, it's hard to kind of turn into chaos. But I had two balloons left in this water fight. And it was a lot, like my last ammo. It was like, after that, my clip is dry, you know? So I'm like, I got to protect. This is my only, this is my ammunition. So I'm running, you know, I'm, somebody's chasing me or something. I'm, I'm running as fast as I can. And I come to like this curb and I'm like, I'm just going to jump over the curb. So I jump over the curb. But when I come down, I kind of like buckle a little bit. And I, you know, when you have those moments where you're like, I'm going to go down. Like, I'm going to go down. You guys can laugh. Don't just smile. Like it's, uh, I, you have permission. I start to buckle. I'm like, I'm going to go down. And I have the thought, I'm like, what am I going to do with these water balloons? Am I going to let them go and have no ammo? Or am I going to do everything in my power to protect my last two bullets, if you will? So, of course, I held on to the water balloons. They did not uh, break. But now I, have, like, I had, like, gravel in my, in my knuckles, and there's still the scar, right? The other day, it was hilarious. Everybody, everybody just erupts in laughter around me. The whole water balloon fight stopped because it was, it was funny. The other day, I had, like, a quick uh, break for lunch, and I, just, I decided to eat lunch in my car. And I'm sitting in this parking lot, and there's this delivery guy. I'm watching him kind of like down across the ravine, maybe 50 yards away. And he's delivering these like, it looked like almost like kegs, but they weren't like beer kegs. They were something else. And so he's kind of like, he's kind of delivering them, and he's wheeling them, and no one's around. I, there's no chance this guy thinks anybody can see him. And the reason I know that is because he's doing this like hip walk thing where he's like, like he's, he's literally just like, just, he didn't have headphones on. I thought maybe he's dancing, but he like literally just had this like, I'm loving life and I'm just walking and <laughs> I'm watching this guy. I'm just kind of eating my sandwich and he totally trips and falls and he does what everyone does when you fall. He looks around and he's like, is anybody there? And I'm, I'm, so I'm eating my sandwich. I burst into laughter. My sandwich comes out of my mouth. Tripping and falling is funny. Okay. It really is. The tripping and falling that Peter's talking about in this passage, though, is not funny at all. The tripping and falling that Peter's talking about in this passage isn't funny because it's fatal. He's trying to bring attention to them about what the reality of the cornerstone of their life really, truly means. <clears throat> so I have to ask you, friend, like, what's the cornerstone you're building your life on and how do you even know what that cornerstone is? I remember you might be like racking your brain going like, I read this passage, I'm studying and I'm going, oh, help me identify this, Lord. Like, I wanna know. How do you even know what the cornerstone is? Here's the question you should ask yourself or you can ask yourself. What's the one thing that if it was taken away, your life would crumble? You see, because we're all building our lives on a cornerstone. And it's either, it's either Jesus or it's something else, right? What is it for you? Okay, so finally, my third thing for tonight. What does this actually mean for us, this idea of the church being the new temple? Jesus is the cornerstone. Remember what I read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. 
Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that, the God, and that God's spirit dwells in you all? The church is the people that are being built together with Jesus as their cornerstone and in whom God's spirit dwells. That's what it means to be this new temple. <clears throat> so let me ask you another question. Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? I think oftentimes I hear people, um, they want to define Christianity based on a behavior. Do you go to church? Do you pray? Do you read your Bible? All those things are amazing. Those are beautiful spiritual disciplines that you're hopefully gonna experience a lot of fruit in. I don't wanna slam any of that. But scripturally, Peter's making a claim that the church, the Christian, is someone who has the spirit of God dwelling inside of them. That's incredible. Because remember that video how holy God was and anybody who went in his presence got annihilated. So let me ask you a question. Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? How can you be sure? <clears throat> um, when I was in high school, I played basketball. I played basketball growing up. I had like a, probably like a, man, it was like a decade where all I wanted to do was play basketball. It was like how I found my identity. It was how I defined myself. And one of the, uh, one of the positions that I played was point guard. And if you're not familiar with basketball, it's basically like the person who brings the ball up the court and runs the play and gets the play going for the team, okay? And what the point guard would do usually is someone would rebound the ball, like you have a basket on this end, a basket on this end, right? And I'm, I'm playing defense. Somebody way taller than me would get the rebound, give me the ball, and everyone would go back this way, and that's now it's our turn to play offense and shoot a basket, right? So as I'm dribbling the ball down, I'm looking at my coach going, okay, what, what play do you want us to run? I'm getting my instructions from my coach so that I can go deliver those instructions to my team. You following me? Okay, hey, whatever play is gonna be, and I give the sign or whatever, and then I initiate the play getting started, okay? <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is God, okay? We, 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 we believe in a triune God, one God made up of three persons. The Holy Spirit is God, okay? <clears throat> he has a role, he has a role, and his role is to declare things from God to God's people. He's, it's a silly analogy and a silly metaphor and picture, but he's kind of like the point guard. He's declaring things to God's people on God's behalf. He's telling them the play that he gets from our Heavenly Father. You tracking with this idea? Okay? So the Holy Spirit's role is to declare things from God to God's people. He informs us. He empowers us. He convicts us. Now, I'm going to give you like a list of passages. If you're taking notes, um, you can write these down. These are, you, can, you can read later. To save time, I'm not going to reference them, or I'm not going to go into all of them, but you can check them out later, okay? Uh, these are all passages that help give us insight biblically into the role of the Holy Spirit. Okay, John chapter 14, John chapter 15, chapter 16, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5, <clears throat> Romans 5, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 12, Galatians 5, 1 John 4. I can give these to you later too if you'd like them, but I'm going to summarize all these for you right now. Okay, I'm going to do the reading for you, although you should read your Bible. The role of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit enables the people of God to enjoy Jesus. He enables us to enjoy 
Jesus. Ephesians talks about how he opens the eyes of our hearts. He makes us aware. He, he helps us see the depths of the love of God. That's what he's doing. He never stops doing that. He never stops proclaiming the glory of Jesus. He never stops testifying to how amazing and incredible Jesus is. He helps us see, he convicts us of sin. Not to condemn us, not to, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. You guys have heard me say this before. Condemnation says this defines you, you're dirty, you're gross, you're ugly. Conviction says, hey, this is happening and it's keeping you from experiencing God's grace and love and joy, and and that brings you joy. Conviction's a good thing because it points to you, if the gospel's true, if the good news about who God is and what he's done is true, that informs what happens with our sin. If it's covered, if God proves his love on the cross to cover your sin, him convicting you of it means that he wants you to experience that love and he wants you to experience freedom from that sin that the brokenness of that sin is gonna cause. <clears throat> so conviction's a beautiful, incredible thing. He wants us to experience this radical grace that covers our sin. The Holy Spirit empowers us to deny sin and actually live a holy life. We've talked about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The role of the Holy Spirit is he enables us to enjoy Jesus. I want you to hear me say that. Take that away from tonight, okay? <clears throat> but here's the thing. It's not just like the Holy Spirit enabling us to enjoy Jesus is very different than him just like informing us about things about Jesus. So knowing things about Jesus and enjoying him are two completely different things. They're both great, but that's not, I'm not talking about this idea of just knowing things about him. <clears throat> it's not just knowing things about Jesus, it's actually enjoying him at a heart level. When was the last time you enjoyed Jesus? As I was prepping this message, <clears throat> I was thinking about this and It's been a crazy week for me. Um, It's just been hectic. I'm battling this cold. And I felt like God, in a really sweet, tender way, just helped me see that oftentimes the circumstances of my life have way more of an influence on whether or not I'm enjoying God and his goodness than they should. And that moment, I was like, oh, that's kind of, that's true. And that, that stinks. But in that moment, instantly, I felt more loved because I knew that the Spirit's desire wasn't to have me feel condemned by my sin and live the perfect holy life. He wanted to free me from that so that I could enjoy Jesus. It was a beautiful thing. When was the last time you actually enjoyed Jesus? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Does he dwell inside you? Is he living inside you? If you're not sure, do you want to? Like, is there desire for that? I'm not asking you if you believe in Jesus. That's not my question. I'm not asking you if you believe in Jesus. I'm asking if the Spirit of God lives in you. Because here's the thing, friends. Um, I would not be loving. I would not be pastoral. I would not be a brother if I didn't share this with you. Just saying I believe there's a God and that Jesus is his son and he, and he died on the cross and, and rose from the dead, that does not make a Christian. <coughs> Guys, Satan believes those things. They're just truths. The book of James 
chapter two, it tells us even the demons believe. They're just truths, but here's the thing. Satan doesn't have God's spirit. It doesn't dwell inside of him. It doesn't inform his life. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Does he dwell inside of you? If not, do you want him to? Jesus says this in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 11, he says this. He says, this brings me so much comfort when I recognize how out of control my life is and how unspirit-led a life I'm living. Jesus says this, verse 11 in chapter 11 of Luke. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, source of food, asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who what? Ask him. You can't earn the Holy Spirit as a gift if you want the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. All you have to do is ask and then actually receive. So what does that look like? I think oftentimes when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, people think like, okay, there's gonna be some crazy experience associated with it, like, like you know, tongues of fire and Acts 2 happening all over again. And listen, God does supernatural things. Uh, trust me, I've experienced gnarly things. But here's the thing. Is it always gonna look like you levitating off the ground? <laughs> no. Like, are you gonna go into a trance? Probably not. <clears throat> More often than not, more often than not, the work of the Holy Spirit looks a lot like this. I wanna read this to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay, this is the vast majority of the miraculous workings of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse three. Again, Paul writing to the church, the people, the living stones being built together that God inhabits in Corinth. He says this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And then check this out. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is, this is crazy. That means that whenever, anytime, at a heart level, you see Jesus clearly, that's the Holy Spirit. Anytime, okay? The simplest thought, man, Jesus loves me. Jesus is, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is incredible. He's glorious. He's different than me. He's holy. But he cares for me. I don't deserve his grace, but he continuously offers it to me. Any of those little thoughts, Paul says, that can only happen as a direct result of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit supernaturally bypassing your flesh and influencing you. It's God intervening in your life. Guys, that's a miracle. It's, it, it, if the Bible's true, it's a miracle. And so oftentimes we chalk it up to, oh, I just had this cool thought and it was encouraging, or it's just my brain. No, any time, according to Paul, it's a miracle, God's intervention in your life, bypassing your flesh, and enlightening, opening the eyes of your heart to the truth of God's love for you. If the Spirit lives in you, then here's the crazy part. You have access to that 24-7. 
It's outrageous. It's beautiful. <clears throat> you ever been drunk? That's a great transition. You ever been drunk? No one wants to raise their hand. You're, okay, you ever been under the influence of alcohol to the point where you're like, it's affecting me? Okay, yeah, there we, thank you, Dakota. Man, <clears throat> it affects you, right? It influences you. It influences your behavior. <clears throat> now listen, I think alcohol can be a gift from the Lord, but it can also take into far destroy your life. But I'm talking about this idea that alcohol can influence you, okay? Imagine what your life would look like if you were drunk on the spirit. Think about the ramifications empowering you, influencing you, testifying to the, to the love of God in your heart. <clears throat> what would that look like? If it was him and him alone influencing you, influencing you to do crazy things like help plant a church or forgive someone that's hurt you really bad. or confess sin. Sometimes the Holy Spirit influences us to do things that our sinful flesh do not want to do. I don't even know how much time I have left, but I have to tell you this story, okay? Um, like, I don't know, uh, six years ago. Uh, no, it was right after we had Amelia. So, when, when Ebony and I had our first baby girl, uh, we had just crappy health insurance. I didn't even have health insurance. All I could afford was to cover Ebony in, you know, in case we got pregnant, and sure enough, we did. Um, I'll give you guys, <clears throat> oh, never mind. Uh, so that happens, and the crappy insurance that we had, the deductible, it was like a, you know, we paid like 300 bucks a month or whatever, but then the deductible was $10,000. Okay, so if you're not familiar with the way health insurance works, basically you have to pay the deductible and after that the insurance will kick in. So we have Amelia and the bill is $24,000, okay, to have a baby. And so we have to pay the deductible, it's 10,000 bucks. We planted the first church right after Amelia was born. <clears throat> okay, God clearly spoke to us, gave us a ton of faith, uh, the Spirit of God influenced us to do something gnarly, like reorient our life, sell all our belongings, and go plant the church, okay? But we knew God was calling us to do it. It was, a, it was an act of obedience. It wasn't an act of like, this would be fun. It was like, let's, God's telling us to do this, so we want to be obedient to it. So we do that. And I have this new inherited $10,000 of debt that I'm like, what am I going to do with this? I don't have a job. Church planning is not, <laughs> just so you know, there, there's no money, okay? Uh, so we plant this church. We have this debt. And a friend of mine calls me up and goes, hey, can I take you golfing? Or before he, before he says, can I take you golfing, he goes, hey, do you want to go golfing? And I was like, dude, I, I love to golf, but I, I'm a church player and I can't, dude, I can't. He's like, no, I'll take you, it's fine. I was like, great, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> so we go golfing and he goes, and like halfway through the round, we're sharing a golf cart together and he goes, hey man, uh, I was praying for you and kind of out of nowhere, um, like, he's not a wealthy man, okay? Not a wealthy man at all. He goes, I was praying for you, and I felt like God told me to, that I need to give you the money, the little bit of money that we have saved up. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's crazy. And he goes, so I wrote a check, 
And then he goes, and then I felt like God kind of like rebuked me and said, actually, no, I want you to give it all to him. So he pulls out the first check and then the second check. And together, those checks equaled exactly what our debt was for Millie's bill. Dude emptied his savings account because God told him to do something crazy. Now, I'm not gonna tell you that he's now a millionaire. I'm not gonna tell you like this health, wealth, fake gospel thing that if you give someone $10,000, God's gonna give you $100,000. That's not true, okay? It's just not true. What I'm telling you is that sometimes God, the Holy Spirit, the person that is the Holy Spirit, his influence on you is to call you to do crazy things that don't feel natural to your sinful flesh. But I can tell you straight up, God used that to absolutely reorient our lives when it comes to generosity. It broke something open in us that is forever changed. Are you following with this idea? Sometimes God, the Holy Spirit, would influence you to do gnarly things, guys. Living a spirit-filled life is not safe. (laughs) It's absolutely not safe. It certainly wasn't safe for Jesus. I mean, consider his life poverty, totally unknown, didn't have a home, and then he gets murdered by the very people he came to love. It's not safe. But I will tell you this, it is the greatest adventure, and you get the greatest reward. That reward is Jesus. You get him living a spirit-led life, a spirit-filled life, a spirit-influenced life, you're going to taste the goodness of Jesus. And I promise you, it will be the most satisfying, way more satisfying than having 10 grand in your savings account. Infinitely more satisfying. And I've since talked to this man, and he's like, dude, God has blessed me more than you will ever know as a direct result of that. And he's not talking about finances. Spirit-led life is crazy, but it is so adventurous and so rewarding. I'm almost done. I'll call the band up with this. You guys can come on up. <clears throat> uh, do you guys remember the video? I just played it, right? Do you remember the part where, where Jesus touches the unclean people? Do you remember this? And it's his purity that makes them clean. That's a beautiful picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. <clears throat> Jesus transferred his holiness as a gift to everyone whose faith, whose trust is in him and what he's done. I think so oftentimes we like to trust our ability to do the right thing and we feel better about ourselves when we compare ourselves to others. Like, I'm not as bad as Hitler, so I must be doing something right. Jesus says, if your trust is in me and what I've accomplished and what I've accomplished alone I will transfer my perfect record to you. I love that part of the video. Jesus starts touching these unclean people, transferring his holiness onto them. And now, because of Jesus, unclean people can be in the presence of a holy God. And not only in his presence, but his presence in them. God takes it a step further. It's his spirit, his Holy Spirit living inside, enabling you to enjoy Jesus, empowering you to love the world the same way Jesus loves. 
It's a transformative thing, guys. And oftentimes what it looks like is you come, you come face to face with this reality of, do I really want to follow Jesus? I can call him my Lord and my Savior, but is he really, do I really want him to be my Lord? Do I really want him to inform every area of my life? Do I want him to be king over my sexuality? Ugh, sometimes. Do I want him to be king over my wallet? Ugh, sometimes. Do I really want him to be my Lord? The role of the Holy Spirit is to enable you to enjoy Jesus, empowering you to, to love the world the same way Jesus loves. I get so excited about this season of the church. It's like barely born. We don't gather on Sunday mornings yet. Our gospel communities are still forming. We're like in this infant stage. It's a beautiful thing. But God is planting a church. He's not planting a business. He's not planting an event. It's not like a glorified Christian party. He's planting a church. And the church is the temple of God with Jesus as the cornerstone and in whom the Spirit of God dwells. You've heard it said, my body's a temple, right? That's true. Okay, I'm not saying it's not. But everything that we just read, remember the y'all? Guys, it's we. The Spirit of God magnifies when his people come together. His presence intensifies, his presence magnifies. The church is what's being planted. The new temple of God, Jesus as the cornerstone, interdependent people whom the Spirit of God dwells in. Let me pray for us. I'm gonna ask you to stand, actually, what you stand. I think some of us, when you hear me talk about the Spirit, um, you're offended maybe, like, who are you, bro? Like, yeah, I have the Spirit. I've been following Jesus. But we see this, um, this pattern in Scripture of men and women who are clearly filled with God's Spirit, begging Him to fill them more, begging Him to fill, him, fill them with more power. And maybe some of you are like, you know what, I don't even know about this Holy Spirit thing. Like, I think conceptually I'm supposed to be, and I think so, but I'm not totally sure. Does the Spirit of God dwell inside me? Am I, um, am I bearing spiritual fruit, love and joy and peace and patience that's a result of Him? And here's what I want to simply do. I want to ask God as His Son to fill anybody who wants more of the Spirit inside of them, to fill them with the Spirit. So if that's you, what I want you to do as an act of faith is just hold your hands out. It's not to be overtly spiritual. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of faith. It's a posture of receiving. And I just want to ask and beg God to fill you with His Spirit in such a way that it absolutely transforms your life. Some of you have been transformed by God. 
but the scriptures talk about us being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, a simple degree. So it's a, it's a really inc- inc- like incremental uh, transformation. So we all need more. But let me just pray for you and pray for me. Spirit of God, you're the helper. You never stop declaring the goodness and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Thank you for your scriptures that help inform us about what you're like and what you're up to. And I just simply ask you in this moment for those that desire more of you and maybe even those that desire to receive for the first time, would you fill them, Holy Spirit? Please. Would you fill each of us? Would you open the eyes of our heart to genuinely and actually see the love of Jesus for us? Personal, intimate, caring. Come, Holy Spirit, please. I thank you for what you're doing even now. Thank you that the love of Jesus is not dependent on our performance. Thank you that it doesn't even matter if we have our hands out or not. You're that powerful. But I thank you that we have opportunities to act in faith, to act in trust. And I pray for joy for each heart in the room. As you open our hearts to the reality of your love, I pray for joy and peace that just covers us. I love you, God. Thank you for being so good to us. In your holy name, Jesus, amen.